This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 47. Today's episode is all about bold moves for big dreamers. You know, you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, it'll never be the same. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. First off, Mind Love is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can get all of your favorite podcasts. It has a super clean layout and you can create playlists and download episodes to play offline. It's my personal favorite and where I listen to all of my podcasts. Don't worry, you can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but I hope you'll give CastBox a try. Second, don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and leave a review if you can. Reviews really help to entice more amazing guests. Plus, it helps me grow the show, which ultimately helps me give more value to you guys. Hi, friends. Have you ever wondered how really successful people got their start? We learned last week that, yeah, talent will give you a leg up. But as much as talent counts, effort counts twice as much. Sure, a lot of people come from money or went to fancy private schools and have all the connections already set up for them to make it big. But what about everyone else? How did Maya Angelou go from growing up in the Great Depression to being arguably the greatest poet of our time? How did Lady Gaga go from singing at open mic nights to one of the greatest women in music history? What's the secret? Our guest today asked himself the same thing when he was just an 18-year-old college student. He thought if he could just find out how the greatest people in the world launched their careers, he could compile all the answers in a book and change how our generation views success. Well, his mission proved more difficult than he imagined, but what he realized is there is always a way. This author is Alex Benayan. Alex Benayan is the author of the national bestseller, The Third Door, which follows his five-year quest tracking down Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Warren Buffett, Maya Angelou, may she rest in peace, Steven Spielberg, Jane Goodall, Steve Wozniak, Jessica Alba, Larry King, and dozens more of the world's most successful people so he could share with the world how they broke through and launched their careers. When he started, it seemed impossible. But today, he's been named on Forbes' 30 Under 30 list, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30, and been featured basically everywhere else. So three key things we will learn are how to keep going through rejection and failure, why it's so important to carefully select your support system, and how to beat imposter syndrome and feel like you finally made it. Plus, make sure to stay until the end because we have our first ever contest with some amazing prizes. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. 
Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning mind love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the Miracle Tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Alex Benayan to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this interview. I just recently finished your book, and it's one of my favorite stories that I've read this year. So this is exciting for me. That means a lot. Thank you. Your whole journey started with what you call your mission. Tell us about your mission and where that idea even came from. I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And I was going through the, what do I want to do with my life crisis? And anyone who's been through it knows it's sort of that thing that follows you wherever you go. It's like that cloud when you're in the shower, it's all you can think about when you're in bed. And to understand why I was going through it, you have to understand that I am the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, which essentially means that I came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms. And then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. It sounds funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. I was that kid. In high school, I checked all the boxes. I went to pre-med summer camp. I studied for the SATs. I applied to college as a pre-med. And by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I began to find myself on that dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And I remember looking over on my desk at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed I'm just being lazy. But eventually, I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now, not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, but then I start having all these other questions of, how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they get started? How did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Or how did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? These are things they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answers. I remember going to the library and just ripping through biographies and business books and self-help books, looking for the book I was dreaming of reading. But... Eventually, I was left empty-handed, and that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in, and I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? I thought it'd be super simple. I thought I could just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'd be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund this journey. I was buried in tuition payments. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And I'm on Facebook and I see someone offering 
free tickets to The Price is Right. And the game show was filming a few miles away from my college campus. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? Not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. Never seen a full episode of the show before. I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it. But I remember sitting at this round wooden table in the corner of the library, making the pro and cons list to prove to myself it was a bad idea. Because for some reason, I couldn't get this thought out of my head. So, you know, I wrote best and worst case scenario. Fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it felt almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I instead had to hack the price is right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. Reading the book for me was like a roller coaster. <laughs> I honestly couldn't put it down. Your whole adventure to where you are now reminds me of the book, The Alchemist. The part where he says, when a person really desires something, all the universe conspires to help that person realize his dream. Thinking about that quote, yeah, you did work your ass off to make things happen. And you met people along the way that helped you make things happen. But even then, there were still elements outside of your control that somehow went your way. Yeah, that's one of my favorite books of all time. Me too. It's such an easy little inspirational read. How did you feel knowing that your family wasn't really on board? And what was it inside of you that gave you that courage and the drive to just do it anyways? I am who I am is because of my family. I'm incredibly grateful for them. When I was younger, though, when I was 18 and just starting off on this journey, I couldn't understand why me even considering leaving pre-med was like essentially World War III in my family. Only now when I look back on it, can I see that my parents fled to America as refugees. They left everything behind because of the revolution. And they came to this country with an idea that if they sacrifice everything to help me get an education, I won't have to suffer the way they suffered. So the very thought of me not being a doctor and going on this like preposterous wild goose chase to go learn from Bill Gates is like their worst nightmare. And again, it's really easy to talk about this. But at the time, these were some of the scariest decisions of my life. And the reason it's so scary is because you have no idea what's going to be on the other side of that cliff. What I've learned about these moments of immense fear is that fearlessness is not the answer. When I had started out on this journey, I assumed all these people who I looked up to had to be fearless, whether it's Bill Gates or Elon Musk, I assume they had to be fearless. But what I've learned over the years through my research and interviews is that every single one of these people was not only not fearless, they were tremendously scared throughout the whole process. So it wasn't fearlessness they achieved, it was courage. 
And while they sound similar, the difference is critical. Fearlessness is jumping off of a cliff without thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic. Courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fears, analyzing the consequences, and then deciding you care so much about it that you're still going to take one thoughtful step forward anyway. That's so powerful because you're right. People assume that this fear that they're feeling must not be felt by other people who are doing these big things, but everyone has it. What matters is how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to transform it into something that pushes you or will you let it hold you back? But you really do seem to have a lot of grit. So I'm curious, what was going on in your head? When you first started, you were young and you had this big mission. I mean, when I was that age, I was just drunk. (laughs) (laughs) So while everyone else was partying, you were already sacrificing to make your mark on the world. So I'm wondering, when did it change from just an idea to something you were fully committed to? It's easy to, in hindsight, try to find this like tipping point. This moment where it looks like everything changed. But what I've realized is that when you're going through it, when you're going after any dream, whether it's starting a business or writing a book or getting a promotion, whatever your dream is, when you're going through it, when you're actually in the trenches, there is no tipping point. It's all just little steps. And for me, when it came to learning these lessons, there'd be some moments where I would definitely learn the lessons and apply them into my life. There'd be other times where... I would make the same mistake 15 times until life smacked me across the face. It all depended on the situation and how much conditioning I had to do the wrong thing. You've read in the book the moment where Tim Ferriss was just essentially yelling at me for being an idiot. And then I made the same mistake again with Warren Buffett. And what I've learned, though, is life will keep trying to teach you the lesson until you listen. That nagging feeling is our intuition. What's interesting is I've learned through different guests on this show that our gut instincts are actually different from our intuition. We tend to use those words interchangeably, but they aren't the same. Your gut gives you feedback on how you feel about something based on your past experiences and fears. So your gut instincts are an emotional response. Think about that. Our gut is an emotional response based on past experiences and fears. It's part of our fight or flight response. When we make decisions based on past experiences and fear, we call more of those same kinds of situations right to us. Now, what happens when we add emotion to that? We become a magnet for those same past experiences. But intuition is not based on emotion. It's our highest calling and it never goes away. If we don't bring awareness to it, we get better and better at ignoring that calling. The more we muffle that voice, the more numb we become to it. But the good news is, the more you listen to it, the louder it becomes. You start to develop a relationship with your intuition, and you start to feel its guidance all of the time. As you were moving through your list of interviewing all of these top people in the world, It was just so cool to see how one just seemed to build to the next one. 
one more connection who might know someone who knows someone to get you to that next big person. My favorite was when you ended up at Summit Series. Listeners who don't know, Summit Series is a series of events that round up a bunch of today's world leaders, the innovative ones, not just a bunch of old white guys in the government. Although, let's be real, there are probably still a bunch of old white guys because that's how life works. But you didn't just end up there and feel out of place. You made all of these connections and you even found your mentor, Total Squad Goals. It is my dream to go to Summit Series. But which part of your adventure blows your mind the most? Ooh, that's a good question. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now for another episode of lies we've been told about our health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Which part of your adventure blows your mind the most? Ooh, that's a good question. The one that's the most miraculous to me is the one that was like the most improbable adventure. Like you said, each interview for this book was an adventure in and of itself. And the one that's the most seemingly unexplainable miracle was definitely with Larry King. 
Ooh, that's a good one. Tell us about that one. I'm sitting on a sidewalk in Los Angeles, and this is after my eight-month quest to get to Warren Buffett. And for various reasons, I'm feeling completely dejected, and I'm sitting on the sidewalk, and one of my best friends, his name is Corwin, he's sitting next to me trying to cheer me up. And we're sitting outside of a grocery store. We just got some sandwiches from the grocery store deli, and we're just sitting on the sidewalk eating our sandwiches. And he's like, you know, trying to lift my spirits. He's like, come on, man. Don't you have any other interviews lined up? And I'm just shaking my head. And he's like, come on. Like, like, don't you want to go out and get back at it? And I was just in such a bad mood. I was like, you know what, man? Even if I had interviews, I'd probably screw them up. You know when you get really bitter and everything in life just feeds through that lens? Um, Yes, I know that feeling once every 28 days. That's the mood I was in. And as we're talking about this, my friend Corwin's like, man, don't be so hard on yourself. Interviewing isn't easy. It's an art. It's not a science. And as we're talking about this, this is where like the miraculous moment comes in. That's still hard to explain. A car pulls up with tinted windows, parks right in front of us. The door swings open and out walks Larry King. It was so eerie. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the things that are the most like perfect timing is when you freeze up the most? So I'm like beyond frozen. I'm paralyzed. Like my mouth is wired shut. My throat is clenched. And Larry King just gets out of his car, walks past us and goes right through the grocery store sliding windows. And I don't say a thing. My friend Corin is like, dude, what the fuck? Why didn't you say anything? And I, I don't know, man. I didn't want to bother him. And In hindsight, I know that that was just the flinch. It was that thing inside of me that just is terrified of rejection, terrified of failure, and just comes up with any excuse possible to not do something. And I call it the flinch. And Corn's like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, you could have said hi. And then, of course, I was like, oh, dude, you know, even if I go into the grocery store now, there's no way I could find him. The flinch loves hiding behind logic. And Corwin goes, Dude, he's 80 years old. How far could he get? (laughs) So like, you know, I had no response. So very reluctantly, I stand up and I just trudge into this grocery store. I look around the bakery. No Larry King. I walk over to the produce section. There's fruits. There's vegetables. There's no Larry. And right then, I remembered he had parked in the loading zone. So he must be leaving any minute now. And this bolt of adrenaline kicked in. And I just started sprinting through the grocery store. I'm running down aisles, looking through every aisle. No Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. Cutting a corner down the frozen food section, swerving around old ladies. No Larry. He has to be at the checkout. So I run over to the checkout. I'm looking down each one. No Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And at this point, I just want to kick a shopping cart. I'm just so angry at myself that even when he had been right in front of me, I hadn't said a thing. So I'm walking out through the parking lot, staring down at my feet, and I look up, and 20 feet in front of me is Larry King, suspenders and all. And I don't know what gets into me, but I feel this rumbling in the pit of my stomach, and I just start yelling at the top of my lungs, Mr. King! And, you know, the echo just reverberates through the parking lot. And the poor guy has had quadruple bypass surgery. (laughs) And 
I'll never forget his shoulders jump like a feet in the air and he slowly turns his head back around. Every wrinkle on his face is sprung back and he looks like he's staring at the Grim Reaper. I don't know what to do. Dug myself into too deep of a hole. So I just sort of like run after him. I'm like, Mr. King, Mr. King, Mr. King. Um, my name is Alex. I'm 19 years old. I've always wanted to say hi. And he's like, okay, hi. And he just sort of speeds off. He's going towards his car and I just am following in silence like a lunatic. And he finally gets to his car and I'm standing there. He's stuffing the groceries into the trunk, opens the driver's door. And I'm like, wait, Mr. King, can I go to breakfast with you? (laughs) Bold move. Before he responds, he looks around at the sidewalk and sees that about a dozen people are now watching this whole thing go down. So I think like out of peer pressure, he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and he's like, okay, 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 okay. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Um, Great. I'll see you tomorrow morning. And he tells me where to meet him. And I'm like, great. I'll see you tomorrow morning. And he climbs into the car and he's about to shut the door. And I go, wait, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me and just slams the door shut. And I'm now like yelling through the windows, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me and just like turns on the car engine. Now I'm literally standing in front of his car, flailing my arms. Mr. King, what time? And he just stares at me and he's like, nine o'clock and just speeds off. The next morning at nine o'clock, I show up at his, uh, his bagel shop. There he is sitting in the corner booth with his friends. And there's actually a seat open at the table, but you know, I had some time to think about it. and. I came to the realization that I wasn't acting that normally the day before. So I wanted to take it easy. So I went up to his table and I just waved and I said, good morning, Mr. King. How are you doing? And he just looks at me and like mumbles. He's like, hello. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. I'm thinking, all right, maybe he wants some time with his friends. Let me sit at the table next to him and wait until he calls me over. So I'm sitting at the table next to him waiting. 10 minutes pass. 30 minutes an hour, and finally he stands up and he starts slowly walking toward me and I can feel my cheeks lifting. And then he walks right past me and heads for the exit. And I just sort of raised my arm and I was like, Mr. Mr. King? And he just shoots around and he's like, what is it, kid? What do you want? At that point, I felt this really familiar pain shoot through my chest and I just looked at him and I was like, honestly? I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spreads across his face. And he looks at me almost as if to say, why didn't you ask me in the beginning? Why didn't you say so? And he looks at me and puts a hand on my shoulder and ends up giving me one of the best monologues of interview advice. And after a minute or two, he looks up to the ceiling as if he's debating something in his mind. And he just looks back at me and goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, 845. See you here. And I show up the next morning at 845. He calls me over to his table and he's like, why are you interested in interviewing? And I tell him about the book and he's like, all right, I'm in. And not only did we do the interview over the past five years, I've been to breakfast with him over 50 times. I want your life. (laughs) For people who doubt the power of intention, though, Seriously, just listen to this story. 
you were in a rut about interviewing people and the greatest interviewer in the world just happens to appear. I love that story. Also, I really need to stalk more influential people. It's so amazing. But what do you take from that? He was pretty standoffish at first. Why do you think he opened up once you asked him that question? First of all, the poor guy just probably gets hounded by a dozen people a day. So I totally get him not wanting to just invite every person and stranger on the street to breakfast with him. So I get that, and he couldn't have been nicer. What I do think changed, and this is actually something Larry taught me during the interview. He said, young people don't understand how the world works. They look at the internet and they think you know, the world has rapidly evolved. And he said, it's not true. Technology has evolved. Human beings have not. Technology has evolved. Human beings have not. And what he means is that still at the end of the day, what makes someone want to help you, what makes someone relate to you is when they look in your eyes and see that you're sincere, they see a part of themselves in you and they want to help. And no email, no tweet can substitute for that. Right. That's easy to forget in this digital world. I also think it's part of the growth process too. You start at the bottom of the food chain and you look for people to pull you up. Then once you're up, you start looking for people who need help being pulled up with you. It's funny because when reading your story, you seemed like just this eager kid just blazing through, especially in the beginning. So I wasn't expecting such a poised guy when we met in person. You just have this magnetic personality. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have you always been that way or was that part of your transformation through everything you've accomplished now? So something most people don't know about me is that I'm actually super introverted. The definition of introvert and extrovert is introverts get energy and recharge by being alone and extroverts get energy by being with others. I'm 100% an introvert. And growing up as a kid, I didn't really have many friends. I always had like one friend in elementary school, a couple friends in middle school, but like I was never really popular. I never really had big friend groups. My mom never let me go out after school or go to sleepovers. I had a very strict like immigrant upbringing. It wasn't until high school that I met a guy. His name is Kevin Heckmat. It was like sophomore year of high school. And I would just sit in this math class and for like three months, just watched this guy be like the nicest, most friendly guy I'd ever seen. And I was like very awkward and shy. So I never really said hi to him, but he sat like a few rows away from me in class. And what's crazy is that this is like a couple months into school. I've never talked to the guy. And I was talking to someone sitting next to me in class about how I wanted to buy a school sweatshirt. And in the high school that we went to, if you were on a athletic team, you got like a $10 discount on school apparel. And I wasn't on a team. And I was just sort of complaining to this person next to me. And Kevin, a couple rows away, overheard me. And we're like sophomores in high school. And he just like leans over. He's like, hey, man, I'm on the soccer team. I'm happy to go at lunch and buy the sweatshirt for you. And I was like, uh, and you have to remember when you're like, 14, 15, no one does nice things for each other. I was like, uh, it's okay. It's really okay. And he's like, no, like, it's not a big deal at all. It'll take like 10 minutes. It's not a big deal. 
I'm like, really, man? He's like, yeah, for sure. Here, take my number. I'll go. I'll go tomorrow during lunch. I was like, wow. And I, part of me like wasn't sure he would actually do it. Yeah. I mean, what a nice guy. Did he learn nothing from Regina George? (laughs) And of course, sure enough, he goes and gets it, gives it to me. He's like, look, man, no big deal at all. And I make like a mental note. Like, I want to be this guy's friend. The way he just lives is, I know it sounds corny, but it just really inspired me. His happiness, the way he made other people around him happy, the way he was just so magnetic. And his aura would always like light up a room. And over that year, we slowly became friends. By the next year, we became best friends. And to this day, Kevin is not only still my best friend, we now live in the same house together. And the craziest thing, are you ready for this? This is actually... It's still crazy to me. I mean, I think I'm ready. So a couple of years after me and Kevin become friends, it's now senior year of high school. We're now best friends. We have this amazing friend group. And Kevin is really the person to answer your question, who taught me how to be social? And I think that's actually one of the biggest lessons. If there's something you want to add to your personality, let's say you want to be an amazing public speaker, go make friends with the best public speakers. Let's say you want to be super thoughtful and poetic, go make friends with great poets. You know, it's easier said than done. It's not something you can just do in a week. But when you have that intention, the people around you rub off on you. So, all right, we're two years in into our friendship and me and Kevin, we're going to prom. He had his girlfriend. I had the person that I asked and we're all going to like the pre-prom where the families like gather to take photos. And we're at pre-prom and Kevin's family's there and my mom and dad are there. And Kevin's grandma so happened to come too. And at the pre-prom, I hear her look at my mom and yell, Tamara. But that's not my mom's name. That's my grandma's name. That's my mom's mom's name. It turns out that Kevin's grandma was recognizing my mom because she looked just like my grandma when both Kevin and Mai's grandma were best friends in Iran 60 years ago. Wait, in Iran? That's insane. And Kevin and I never knew this, and we never met through our families. And the reason our grandmas were best friends is because our great-grandmas were best friends 80 years ago on the other side of the world. Please tell me that Kevin's grandma bought your grandma a sweatshirt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so crazy. It's amazing. I feel like that's one of the most serendipitous encounters I have ever heard of. It's like the cutest bromance ever. Yeah, he's, he's like my brother now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. 
And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot MindLove. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, wow. So your life is full of these amazing meant to be moments, but you also dealt with a lot of rejection through it all. Also, I think it's worth noting that you were still a baby. You had this idea your first year as an independent human. Those years of late teens to early twenties are a vulnerable time. We're like irrational emotions with limbs. <laughs> so how did you keep going without letting all of that rejection and sometimes even lectures from some of the most respected people? How did you not let that affect your self-worth? Well, you know, to answer the first part of the question, for every like miraculous coincidence of my life, there's been like equally miraculous disasters. Like, and not even disasters, just things that you know, for every one in a million opportunity, I've had like a one in a million loss. Like I remember I spent a lot of time trying to interview Jay-Z You know, I love his music. I really admire how he built his businesses. And I spent a lot of time trying to get that interview. And I finally worked my way into making friends with one of the executives at Jay-Z's company. And I'm in the boardroom of Jay-Z's office. It's like 5 p.m. I'm in New York. I flew out to New York for this meeting. I'm in the office for at 5 p.m. and me and the executive are just talking for like two hours about the book and he's super excited. And after two hours, I'm like, hey, do you mind if I go, you know, jump and use the restroom? He's like, absolutely. Down the hall to the left, like just keep going and you'll find it. So I go and I come back five minutes later and the executive's like, you are an idiot. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, the second you left. A minute later, Jay walked into the boardroom, sat down for a minute. I told, I asked him to stay, but he had to go and you just missed him. I have like a dozen of those stories just by a hair missing out on these seemingly miraculous moments. And actually, I always wonder too, like how many times I've like missed like major life moments by like a minute. It's so hard to think that way though. I feel like that with Bitcoin sometimes. So I bought a little over $100 back in 2011, but I did it in the most untraceable way possible, which was totally stupid. Well, the whole thing was totally stupid. Back then, I was just as curious as I am now, but also reckless and invincible. <laughs> and I had heard about the Silk Road. It was this online black market on the dark web. And I wanted to see if it was possible to buy 
party drugs. Yes, so dumb. (laughs) I wasn't even doing drugs regularly at the time. But because I was trying to be sneaky, I set up an email under an encrypted service that I hadn't even heard of before. I accessed it on a private browser. I used names and passwords that I had never used before. All of the things to make sure no one would figure it out. And at least I did that part right because I couldn't even figure it out and I never logged in again. That $100 is probably sitting at around 100K by now. So that's like hundreds of thousands. Karma is a bitch. Yep, I've let that one go. There's just no way I'm going to figure it out. It was an hour moment, and I don't think I deserve to figure it out. It bothers my cousin Tracy more than it bothers me at this point. But I believe things happen when they're supposed to happen. Because the only reason that money is still in there is because I couldn't access it. I forgot the logins immediately. If I hadn't, there's no way that money would still be there. I probably would have actually had LSD delivered like I had wanted to, even though I had never even tried it at that point. And then maybe I would have been one of the many people implicated in the Silk Road sting. Who knows? But dwelling on that loss isn't something that moves me forward. So no sense living in the past. Yeah, I agree 100%. You have to honor those mistakes. You also made some mistakes through all of this. You kind of touched on one about over-persistence. And Tim Ferriss got in your face a little bit about it. So tell me about that lesson. Where's the line for you now between relentless grit and going a little too far? You know, for me, when I was going out to get these interviews, I would get, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of rejections. And the only thing that kept me going was I would read all these business books that said, you know, persistence is the key to success. So I just, you know, plastered my bedroom in my office with quotes about persistence. What ended up happening with Warren Buffett is I spent eight months trying to track down Buffett and I spent so much time writing him these like handwritten letters and I'd mail it to his office. I would call his assistant week after week after week. And after six months, it is pretty excessive. By month seven, it's like atrocious. And by month eight, it's to the point where Buffett's assistant's doing everything she can to try to like keep me at bay. And finally at the end, she's like, look, Alex, I know your heart's in the right place, but I know Warren and the answer is just no. And she's like, how about you come as my guest to our annual meeting? And I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, thank you so much. And she's like, of course. And, you know, I ended up going to annual meeting, but I still never got that sit down one-on-one interview with Warren Buffett. But soon enough, I did get my dream interview with Bill Gates. And the interview with Gates went so well that I ended up connecting with Gates' chief of staff. And the chief of staff said, look, we love what you're doing. Let us know how we can help. And I was like, you think you can help with Warren Buffett? And he's like, of course. Yeah, that's easy. He sends a message to Buffett's office. And I'll never know exactly what happened. But I assume Buffett's office said something essentially like, oh, we know all about Alex. And it's not happening. And I got an email from Gates' chief of staff saying, please, no more messages to Warren's office. Thanks. It really hit me in that moment that not only was the answer no, but I had essentially gotten myself blacklisted. And it's something no one talks about. All these business books talk about the power of persistence, but none talk about the dangers of over-persistence. 
where you can bang on a door so many times that instead of breaking it down, all that happens is they call the police on you. I realized I had dug myself into such a deep hole that even Bill Gates couldn't pull me out. That's pretty rough. On one hand, everyone's heard that you have to keep going, be relentless, reach out until they say yes. And then you do and people are like, whoa, buddy, back it up. (laughs) Was there anything outside of yourself that kept your confidence up after moments like those? You know, I have this analogy where, you know, if you imagine a fishbowl full of water and you take, you know, one little drop of green food coloring and you drop it in the fishbowl, what happens? The whole bowl turns green. I think the same is true when it comes to the mindset of the people you surround yourself with. If you have even one drop of someone who believes what you're doing is a waste of time or impossible and you're hearing that voice. It's just a matter of time before everyone's head is polluted with that thought. And I think you have to be super relentless about making sure that the people that you're confiding in, that you're relying on for support on your mission, whatever your mission is, are 100% ruthlessly behind you. Let's say it's your grandma or your spouse or your friend who isn't super stoked about what you're doing, that's great. I'm not saying you have to cut that person out of your life altogether. I'm just saying don't put them in your inner circle of who you're calling every day, asking for advice and leaning on. Someone can still be your grandma and you can still love them and you just don't have to update her every day on how your book's going. And I think you have to be super thoughtful about not only who you're investing your time into, but who you're listening to for support. Because it's so easy to give up on your own that the second you have someone else also echoing that it might be a good idea to give up is a fast track to leaving. I love that. And it's so true. That is definitely something that I'm careful about these days because it's not as simple as positive versus negative people. It's easy to categorize somebody that's bringing up the downsides of something especially your dream, as being negative or not supportive. But a lot of times, they're just giving advice based on what they know, how they know to find success, what they think is possible, the failures that they have let define their lives. So the response is understandable because if they didn't fully believe that, they wouldn't be living by that. But if you want to be bigger than you are, If you want to push the boundaries of what's already been achieved, you have to really guard your mindset, protect your energy. Because when you're still trying to catch the wind in your sails, sometimes those little holes that are poked can take the whole boat down. I'm curious, from initial idea in that dorm room to mission complete, did your mission change or evolve at all? You know, the mission from the very beginning was that I had this belief that if all these people shared their best guidance and wisdom with the next generation, you know, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best advice with those who are looking for it, people can do so much more. The original idea was to create this book that would be packed with practical advice and guidance and tools and tactics and Well, the book 
still has that aspect to it. There's Bill Gates's negotiating secrets and Tim Ferriss's cold email template. You know, the book still has those aspects. What's evolved and what's changed over the years is really the soul of the book. And only now at the end can I see that the soul of this book is really about possibility. You know, you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, it'll never be the same. And that's really what makes this book so special. And that really goes alongside the meaning behind the title also. So for listeners who don't know, can you tell us the backstory on the title of The Third Door? Absolutely. You know, I spent, you know, seven years going on this journey. And in the beginning, I had, you know, no desire to find that, you know, one key to success. You know, we've all seen those TED Talks or those business books that talk about the one key to success. And normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening about three or so years into this journey is I started realizing that every single person who I talk to treats life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance or the line curves around the block where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. What I've learned, though, is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took a third door. There is always a way. You just have to meet opportunity with action. I've had a lot of experience in my own entrepreneurial journey. I mean, it's still happening. But I think it's important to note that the more risks I take, the more often it seems to happen. Here's a funny story that actually happened. In 2012, George Clooney hosted a fundraiser dinner for Obama. Tickets were $40,000 per plate. I had a friend that actually had a ticket, and I decided I was going to try to get in. Again, this was still around my reckless and invincible time, but I'm guessing that the 40 milligrams of Adderall I was taking per day helped that just a little bit. If you've ever tried to sneak up on the president, you'd realize that that shit is not simple. But my wealthy friend told me that he'd buy me an outfit on Rodeo Drive if I attempted. I realize I sound a little like Pretty Woman right now, but whatevs, it turned out pretty great for her, right? I figured, there's no way I'm going to get in, but at least I'll get a really expensive outfit out of the deal. I'm pretty sure he just wanted company through the hours of traffic we had to sit through to get through the crowds. Also, like 10 checkpoints. We get to the first checkpoint, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm a goner. My friend rolls down the window, and an officer asks for his ID, checks him off the list, but never peeps his head in far enough to see me. This happened at every single checkpoint. Next thing you know, 
We're at the bottom of George Clooney's driveway, and there are several people and security behind a red velvet rope checking names and IDs again. I tell the limo driver to stay close because there's no way that I'm making it through here. My heart is pounding as they're looking at my friend's ID and checking him off the list. Then they ask for my ID. I hand it to her. She looks at it and hands it back to me and tells me to go ahead. She never cross-referenced my name with the list. So now I'm on to the next roadblock. George Clooney's driveway is really long and steep, so they had a golf cart taking people up. I go and sit in the back to wait for my friend, and someone's already there, and the guy that's already in the golf cart turns around and introduces himself. Hi, I'm Toby. I'm thinking, great, I'm going to get arrested next to Toby McGuire. But the next thing you know, we're all going up the driveway like we're friends, and we get to the top. They're checking things again. They check my purse, but this time they don't check ID or the list. I'm still just waiting to be found out while standing in George Clooney's living room looking at his family photos on his mantle. And also while I'm then having cocktails with George Clooney himself. I have a photo. I will post it in the show notes. I talked to Selma Hayek and Jack Black. Keep in mind, I'm 27 at the time, only a couple years into my time in LA and still a little bit starstruck. I mingled for an hour and a half. I almost thought I was in the clear. Well eating breadsticks with Barbara Streisand and shooting the shit. But unfortunately, it's pretty obvious when there's an extra when there are only 15 tables of 10. And then I got kicked out by Secret Service. They were oddly nice about it because they thought the mistake was on them. How else did I get in through all of those checkpoints? Honestly, I'm still amazed by that story. At the time, my only focus was meeting George Clooney. Imagine if my mission was at all related to my purpose. Imagine if I used that power of intention for something more fulfilling than an Instagram photo. What would be possible then? Kids, don't try that at home. I'm not necessarily recommending that risk, but whatever. It's a cool story. The more risks you took, the more you started to conquer the flinch. So I'm wondering, when did you stop feeling like an inspiring entrepreneur and start feeling like you finally made it? Did you ever conquer imposter syndrome or do you still deal with it? You know, I believe that the difference between an aspiring entrepreneur and an entrepreneur is how much you believe in yourself. And for me, very early on, I was 18 or 19 and I would tell people, you know, I'm an aspiring author. And then I realized, wait a minute, an author is just someone who is writing a book. I'm writing a book. There's this quote that I heard, I don't remember who said it, but it says something like, you can't be a noun without being the verb. And essentially, it's like you can't be the noun, the author, without writing. You can't be a writer without writing. You can't be a singer without singing. I really think as soon as you just start doing it and it's part of your identity and it's part of your priority, the difference between an aspiring photographer and a photographer is a photographer says, I'm a photographer. It really comes down to how you view yourself and whether you think you're ready. And I believe that you shouldn't have to wait for anybody's permission except for your own. So let's talk about now. You made this big dream into a reality. You figured out this concept of the third door and how there's always a way. And you found a way. You published your book and your life is completely different. How has that shaped how you live today? 
Have there been any other cool stories or serendipities since the publishing of the book? There have been. And something that I love that a friend of mine, his name is Jesse, always says is that he says, you know, serendipity is God's way of winking at you. And I really love that. And it's just a reminder that you're on your path. I actually remember like one of the crazier ones happened when I was done with the writing right before the book came out. My writing mentor, his name is Cal Fussman. He's an incredible writer. He wrote the Esquire magazine's What I've Learned column. He's co-authored two New York Times bestselling books. He has this amazing podcast called Big Questions. And when Cal started mentoring me, he said, look, if you're going to take this process seriously, if you want to write a truly great book, you have to approach this with the same intensity that an Olympic athlete trains for the Olympics. And I gave him my word and I really took it to heart. I would wake up at 6 a.m. every day and write with the intensity of an Olympic athlete. It took me a while, but eventually the book was finished and I was very proud of it. And what's crazy is on complete coincidence, the day that Cal and I had our final session where we were like reviewing one of the final chapter, the one with Lady Gaga. On the final edit, I got to my office that day. I left the coffee shop where Cal and I were editing. I got to my office and on my friend's step was a package from Nike. This was back, this was two years ago when the Summer Olympics were happening in Rio and there was a care package. I open it up and it's all this Olympic gear that says like Team USA. And like the timing of that was just so incredible that it was literally my final editing session and I get to my office and there's this like unmarked package. It's not like this big fancy Nike box. It's like a regular brown box and I open it up and it's like all this Team USA gear and it was just probably one of the craziest coincidences of my life. Wow. Again, just such an inspiring example of what happens when you make your intention clear. It just seems to magnetize all of the right resources. Well, I personally hope, actually, I'm confident that you will, that you keep setting new goals and making bold moves to show us all what's possible forever, because I want to follow your stories till I die and make some equally awesome ones right along with you. For listeners who are interested in learning more about you and your book and what you're up to next, where's the best place to connect with you online? So the book, and first of all, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so happy the book resonated and this was a ton of fun. The book is available everywhere you like to buy books. So whether that's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Audible or Kindle or iBooks or Google Play, you know, wherever you like to buy books, the third door is there. And if you do end up buying the book by this podcast, definitely let me know on social so I can say thank you. Um, Twitter and Instagram, it's all the same. It's at Alex Benayan. So A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. Don't run off quite yet because we also have some big news, our first ever contest. All you have to do is go to mindlove.com slash contest by October 17th at midnight and you can win a signed copy of The Third Door, plus a self-journal from bestself.co because it's my favorite journal for making shit happen. 
and a 15-minute coaching call with me. We can talk about anything you like, whether it's brainstorming your next big action, figuring out your goal, help with purpose, book recommendations, the sky's the limit. Again, go to mindlove.com slash contest by October 17th at midnight Pacific Standard Time. How great was that interview? I love that human. He's younger than me and he's accomplished so much. It's just so inspiring. Plus his office is kind of near me, so hopefully we'll become friends. I need some of that magic energy in my circle. All of the links in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 047. You can support this show by supporting our sponsors. I'm super picky about my sponsors and I only partner with brands that I love and fully believe in. If you're enjoying Mind Love, tell a friend, family member, or coworker about it. And don't forget to subscribe on CastBox or Apple Podcasts and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, for some extra inspiration between episodes, don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com or text the word morning to 33777. You can also visit me on social media at Mind Love Podcast, where I post extra videos throughout the week. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. Thank you.